0: AJ, does AJ stand for Adrian Germain?
1: It does. Okay, nice. Does it stand definitely. for iron uh, juice?
2: Orange
3: juice.
0: No. <laughs> <Aaron's> juice. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 116. Today, we are going to be talking about Hellboy, the adaptation by Guillermo del Toro, which actually produced two movies, Hellboy and Hellboy, The Golden Army. But we're also talking about Mike Mignola, who created Hellboy as a comic and was involved in those two movies, and just comics and films, and moving you know, the, the comic book sensibility from comics to films. And today, we have returning special guest, Adrian Jermaine Greer, AJ Greer, who is on The Secret Movie. Club team. Give it up for AJ. Yay. Yay. My fans, my millions of fans. AJ is on the Secret Movie Club team. You know AJ from many of the posts he does, often on Instagram stories, as well as his ideas, which steer us in the best directions in terms of social media. AJ, how you doing? Doing good, man. It's a good
2: Tuesday, good day out. Nice and warm. I'm not at work, which is great. That's great to have
0: you. It's good to be here.
1: And who else is with us? Uh, Hey, it's Daniel. It's me, Conroy Cruz, the people's champion.
4: (sighs) Hello, America. It's just another day in dog day land. Where the hell you call it these days?
0: You're talking like my son. Dog day land? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. My son refuses to say that his birthday is in August now. He says it's dinosaur day. And I'm like, what's dinosaur day, Craig? He's like, my birthday. I'm like, your birthday is August 17th. He's like, no, it's Dinosaur Day. Like, why is this so important to you? I don't know how you argue it. No, and then I try to figure out the logic of it. But then I catch him on the side door and I'm like, wait, when's your birthday? He's like, August. Wait, dinosaur day. Then he gets angry at me for switching my tone of voice in a ninja way. And I am Craig, the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. It is wonderful to
1: have you. Future Connor, tell us what's going on. No events this week, but by the time this is posted, I believe all or at least most of our October, November, and December events will be live, so you can go ahead and buy tickets to those, including our rescheduled Mike Magnola Frankenstein event now Frankenstein, instead of Bride of Frankenstein, the original Frankenstein, that event has been moved to October, and we mention it, I think, once or twice in here as if it hadn't happened yet when we recorded, but would have happened by the time it released, but it got pushed back, so now it yeah, it just hasn't happened at all yet. So it's in October if you missed it before, and all of our other events for the rest of the year are up there. We're coming back, baby.
0: As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Check us out at SecretMovieClub.com Get tickets for all our events on Eventbrite Just EventbriteSecretMovieClub.com As always, if you like what we do, follow us Or like us, comment, let us know What we can do better, and we will try to do better Okay, here we go Today, we're talking about really the general topic is something that it's always been. Well, you know, it has always been. Actually, you can go back to the 20s and 30s serials, you know, Buck Rogers and all these things that did come from the comics of their time. Batman was a serial in the 40s. There were other serials too, the shadow. But anyway, comic books. Being adapted or comics being adapted into movies is something that goes way back in cinema. But it definitely feels that it's ramped up since maybe the the late 70s. You might peg the Salkind's adaptation of Superman directed by Richard Donner with Christopher Reeve and Gene Hackman. Really as the opening bell of what has been sort of a trend that has
1: just accelerated exponentially in the last 40 years. I feel like every decade since then there's been like a movie our set of movies that have kicked it up another notch. So Superman, about a decade later was Batman, about a decade after that was Blade, X-Men and Spider-Man. And about a decade after that was the beginning of the MCU. Yeah,
0: as well as some interesting adaptations from The 300 or Frank Miller or Sin City or Watchmen. But today we're going to start it at least by focusing on the Hellboy adaptations by Guillermo del Toro. Hellboy was created by Mike Mignola, who himself started out not as a story guy or a writer, but actually as somebody who did covers. Uh, he did covers for Marvel and for DC. There's some interesting backstory, Mike. Into there's a cover he did that many people still ask him about because it seemed to predict the death of Robin in a certain Batman series. But he eventually worked for Dark Horse Comics and created Hellboy. Hellboy then created this whole Hellboy universe, which includes Abe Sapien and BRPD. I want people to correct me if I'm getting that wrong. And then it was adapted in the early 2000s by Guillermo del Toro, sort of predicting a prologue to MCU. It predated it by about six years, I think. Uh, uh, four years. The reason we're chosen, which is so important to this podcast, is Mr. Magnola is joining us at the Million Dollar Theater. He chose Bride of Frankenstein, as the movie he wanted to show and talk about, the 1935 James Whale. And then a documentary was just made about him, uh, Mike Mignola making monsters. And then Mr. Mignola is joining us on stage just to talk about everything we're talking about right now.
1: Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of experience with his actual work, which sucks because I think I would love it. And I always like I have a couple of times started the Hellboy comic and didn't just because of life gotten distracted but i always really like it but um i think the del toro adaptations are great i have no idea how faithful they are i think the second one's probably stronger but i rewatched the first one for this it's just such a good fun adaptation a good pairing of director and source material at least from what i can tell of the hellboy character Feels like just a kind of more sarcastic version of the kind of characters that Del Toro usually has as his leads. These sort of monster characters who, uh, who are are sometimes at least want to be something more. I think my biggest thing with the Del Toro Hellboy movies is I wish he could have kept making them because I think you see this with a lot of big budget movies sometimes where there'll be a first one by a you know, an auteur director and it's pretty good. And then they get to make a second one and you can tell the studio was just like, okay, this time you could do whatever you want. And that's what golden army feels like. And I wish he could have been able to make a third. And I wonder if it had been made, if these movies had only been made like five years later, if maybe he probably would have been able to.
0: The first one was made for about 50 million, 60 million, and it made just under a hundred. Then the second one was made for about 90 million and it made about 160 million. They did make money, but when you factor in advertising budgets and what it costs to market movies like that, they were essentially break-even propositions, which is why I think... The third
1: never came to fruition. The second one came out the same year as Iron Man and The Dark Knight, it
3: should be noted. Like a week after The Dark Knight or something. Like, a, Honestly, as well as it did, it's sort of insane. Or maybe like two weeks before or something. But insane summer for comic book movies.
2: As with Connor, I'm not very familiar with the Hellboy universe. I think it was, it came out and I wasn't quite old enough to appreciate it. The movie came out and the universe was, the cinematic universe was opened a little bit early, like... It seems like a fun universe. It seems like a lot there's a lot of like great characters to branch off on. It's just it came out a little bit early before the MCU established that a comic book universe could be successful and
0: like viable. The log line often on the Hellboy movies and adaptations is what you guys are saying, that it was almost a few years too early to really make the most of what was about to be this renaissance of expanded universe MCU. Although I do wonder I think it also bears saying that Hellboy was a Dark Horse comic series, and Dark Horse comics, at that time, they were a little more indie, they were a little more artist-friendly, they were willing to be a little darker, a little stranger, so I think by sort of result or default, they were maybe also a little more niche than DC or Marvel.
1: That That is also true, because Dark Horse has always been, like, one of the big, like, third <laughs> publishers i think they're a little more surpassed by image now it's probably the third biggest publisher but dark horse is still probably like number four if i were to guess them or boom or something i definitely get that it definitely doesn't have that like direct cultural appeal because everyone's like who's hellboy you know as opposed to every mom and dad knows who batman is and spider-man and stuff and uh, knows like marvel and dc even if they couldn't tell you who belongs to what exactly but i also think that these movies are um they're pretty fun and they're not they don't really need to be r-rated i wondered if that was a situation where maybe they made del toro not make them r-rated i feel like del toro is one of those filmmakers who kind of goes back and forth he probably understands that these don't need to be r-rated i personally I'm, I'm curious what you think aj and i sometimes find it weird how people are obsessed with like this character's got to be rated r and it's like eh. like if the movie's good movie's good
2: With comics, everybody has their own relationship with the characters.
1: Especially any character that's been around long enough. There's been so many iterations of it. Exactly. Like, yeah, like if you
2: go with like Marvel or DC, like those characters have been around for like 50 years and through different iterations. And so, and depending on who's writing the character, you're going to get a different character. So people will gravitate towards certain things with certain characters. But when it comes to Image or Dark Horse, like some of those, like kind of second tier, comics they're not as familiar so the people who gravitate towards them are going to have a stronger connect because they're not so like so broadly discussed you know it's like it's like oh oh you read Dark Horse oh you're you know you really know what's going on you know like you're inside so yeah so I I think that that might be why it wasn't as popular as it could have been even with an R like R and P G thirteen are they're a lot closer than they used to be, too. There's things that you can get away with in the PG thirteen movie that you couldn't get away with before. Okay.
0: That's a whole that's a that's like a whole conversation we could have another time about ratings. I'm sure everyone knows the stories about how indie movies will just get slapped with an R. And then you'll look at like and I love this movie, Spielberg's War of the Worlds. Legit probably should have been R, but you could give so much money if you're a studio and the rating system was created by the studios to protect themselves. That, you know, you'll get a movie where like 50 bodies are floating in a river, War of the Worlds, by the way. Guy gets spiked in the head and like drinks his brain fluid, War of the Worlds. As
3: long as you don't see the F word twice, no, we're fine.
1: (laughs) It's interesting though, because there's a lot of comic book movies, there's a lot of things that have used the R rating as like a marketing thing, I think, from my Mm. point of view. Yeah, like the Deadpool movies, they've benefited to a certain degree from the R rating but they've also definitely used like this one's rated r guys like the new Zack snyder justice League. batman says the f word in this one guys you gotta you gotta watch it Or like the new hellboy movie that i think did not as well as the old ones in i think every respect critically and commercially is rated r yeah
3: there's sort of like there's like a weird drive of like oh we have to make it rated r as like a shock factor thing but no like story or character purpose it's just now we can see people get cut in half but our story is no good still
1: and not even that we can see them getting cut in half because you can do that in pg-13 as you can do it get them cut in half now they can say an f word and you can see some guts yeah
3: um i was not familiar with hellboy until i saw the original in theaters and then i I kind of dabbled around in it and it's definitely an interesting thing i think about in the mid-2000s how my local comic book stores were structured and it was always like dc marvel on each side in massive quantities and then sort of tucked away were these smaller studios smaller maybe not a fair word for dark horse as i think connor said they're like the third or fourth biggest one but i always associated dark horse specifically with the star wars comics of the 90s that i was obsessed with and as a as an offshoot i was looking at their wikipedia to see what properties had been made into movies and some of the stuff like tank girl mystery men the mask 300 sin city some really interesting stuff i think it definitely like you said is a writers are, I kind of associate it as like an artist medium, because I think they have a really specific, interesting style that their people make. Hellboy was sort of my introduction to the, I mean, Marvel stuff, I was used to having it connected, but having these spinoffs tied to characters was really appealing, which I think was something that Star Wars started with me, that there's a thing that you like, and you can probably find a thing that's about that thing that you like more in depth. And so with Hellboy, um, these spinoffs, like there's like this sort of police force in Hellboy, the... BPRD type of thing and not a good movie, but a cool concept for like a supernatural police force as a comic book type of spinoff. And my favorite thing was actually when I first moved to LA and kind of got back into comic books at a local store, Magnola was releasing a series that was about Frankenstein's monster who had taken Frankenstein's name, but was in the Hellboy universe. And it was this very cool, like, now it was like a merger of like using like the original Mary Shelley novel as canon, but then blending it with the Hellboy stuff that I thought was really endearing. From the stuff that I've read of Magnola's, I I really like, I think Hellboy's such an interesting concept. And I was looking up some information about him. And it was mentioned that he was raised Catholic. And I think a lot of his religious imagery coming into the content makes it really interesting. Because for me, growing up in a religious household, a lot of stuff would get, not from my parents, but from sort of like a general public of my friends and their parents, Hellboy as a title was an instant, absolutely not type of thing. So then of course <laughs> I was like, well, I'm in, I have to know. Because I was trying to understand why it wasn't there. And then kind of revisiting it as an adult, it's I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff at play. With the way that it uses like the imagery of the concept of like a religious hell and paints religion into like the community aspects of these things and like the misfit aspects that I find really engaging that feels like it's not pandering but feels like a sort of struggle of understanding identity that I'm really drawn to and stuff and Hellboy does that and then Del Toro's take on it Match Made in Heaven in terms of design seeing Hellboy was the reason I saw Pan's Labyrinth and then Hellboy two the next year which I think is a better movie though I enjoy them both. I'd be curious. I know that there was some weird behind the scenes stuff and like you guys have talked about with it, never getting the third one, but it's just such a pleasant thing to be in the, not pleasant because it's a nightmare, but it seems like such a freeing thing for Del Toro to work on. It feels like a real auteur's view. Like it seems like he really understood Mignola's, really used his art to create this thing, but also make it his own. And I think that's kind of a rarity that is very dope in this regard.
4: Uh Well, you know, I don't know much He's about comics.
1: cigarettes in your room?
4: Uh, no, it's uh herb Roll. It's CBD, so uh, okay. it's good. It just,
0: you just I look look like, like how you, you look like, like, you're, like a- you're a private investigator now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's going to be great for the podcast, Adam. Yeah, <laughs> some good audio. Yeah, keep your lips as close together as you can while you talk. Yeah, look, <laughs> uh, look, look,
4: look. I don't have to talk comic book guy, okay? I'm not a comic book guy. Not a superhero guy. All right, I'm, I'm a motion picture guy. You but uh, but, manga. Uh, but I I have. Okay, yeah, that's that's different though. That's for fucking <laughs> weeb. <laughs> I love Hellboy. I saw as a kid. I got to meet the, the actress that was in Hellboy. I literally forgot her name. Salma Blair. Salma Blair. She came to Los Feliz three for her documentary. Told her I loved the Hellboy and Hellboy two. That my dad showed them to me at a very young age. So that was pretty nice. I, I don't know who Mike Manola is. Sounds like a pretty cool guy that does comic book stuff for Dark Horse. Pretty cool, pretty cool,
0: pretty cool. In putting together the Mignola event, one of the things that I learned, and it's no surprise, is actually Mr. Mignola wanted to show Bride of Frankenstein because the del Toro Hellboys, and I understand the dilemma, it is clearly Mignola, it's also clearly del Toro. And I think that when you enter into the film world, it's got to be frustrating when you created the character, literally, it's a visual medium—the comics. You drew the character, but then sometimes people refer to it as Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy, and you've probably got to be like, "Oh, okay."
3: It's that same thing when like a big filmmaker produces someone else's thing, but all the marketing is around their name. Sort of like uh, V for Vendetta. You're like, "Well, that's a that's a Wachowski movie," and it's it's not like that director just gets like this weird short end of the stick almost. Oh, yeah. It's like the Tim
0: Burton stop motions, you know, Henry Selleck, like <laughs> oh busted his butt to do nightmare before Christmas. And then everyone. They did
3: dirty calling it Tim Burton's the night before Christmas too. Uh, yeah.
0: But I guess the thing is that in fairness, Mignola was a visual consultant. I actually also found out that Mignola was the production designer on a Disney movie. Atlantis That actually makes so much sense. <laughs> that rules. One of the important things to conceptualize about movies is that they really truly are, in the very best sense of the word, collaborative. And I think that when you're younger or auteur-based, and I'm very auteur-based. I mean, I'm wearing my Kurosawa shirt as we speak. I program a director of the year. It would be hard to argue that I'm not auteur-director-centered, but as I get older, I actually realize that movies hum the best when everyone's like, hey, I do what I do well, and there's a lot I don't do well, and you're a great cinematographer, and you're a great director, you're a great writer, you're a great actor, I can't act. And then everyone comes together and tries to tell a great story. When I watched Hellboy, I initially was like, eh. <laughs> After, like, for a while, I was like, I, you know, Rasputin, okay, what, Nazis, okay, yeah. So it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark, and... Then there's this fish guy and like for a while I was like, I just don't know that this mythology, there's a lot of movies and I feel this way about comics sometimes and, and where it's always the end of the world. And there's always something that's going to destroy the world. And it's the whatchamacallit that's going to destroy the world. And then there's this mythology about all these characters. It's like, oh, no, Rasputin. Oh, no, this hell dog that divides into two. And my brother used to make fun of it with Lord of the Rings. My brother was definitely the popular one. I'm one of seven. And if we were each archetypes, my brother was the popular guy in high school. But he was also the funny popular guy. So he'd be like, Craig, Craig. You want to hear my Lord of the Rings oppression? Be like, yeah, Dieter, go for it. He'd be like, my name is Gothnar of the mountain people. We have brought you the magic elixir known as the song. Would you like to taste the Z song? And he would just do this and he would be like, he would point out that the people who don't care about this stuff, it just sounds like gibberish. And I would laugh and I'd be like, well, you have a point, but Lord of the Rings is still dope. But what I would say is that by the uh, end of Hellboy, I actually thought that Del Toro had made it his own. I liked the characters. I thought they were intense. The dude at the beginning who turns out to be like into self-mutilation. Yeah, that was like horrific to me. When they showed that he had torn off his own lips and mutilated himself, I was like, oh, that's del Toro for sure. I did find that I did enjoy it in the end. And the thing I actually liked talking about being Catholic was, you know, something that people don't talk a lot about is that Catholics believe in free will, which is why Catholics rage against this idea that everyone's predestined or God has a predestined plan for. Catholics believe that you have a choice. And it's through your actions and your choices that you get closer to God. If you you act, you try to, you know, be a good person, you try to help the poor, you try not to be a to your family, you try to better yourself. And it's all about, like, constantly trying to improve yourself. And so I did like in Hellboy that at the end he chooses. He's like, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do what people are telling me. I choose to do the right thing. So actually by the end of the movie, I was like, word. So as a practicing Catholic, it actually did speak to me. But I would also say that I also felt in the movie that Del Toro was really trying to make a Hollywood picture. I also felt that, at least in the first one, I was like, oh man, another action sequence. Oh, here we go. It just felt like it was like, man, I gotta prove to them. I can make this kind of movie. Comic book's
3: a very specific medium, maybe tailored to be uh, approachable on film because so much of it's visual and you have something to play off of. And you get something like Watchmen that's sort of using the comic as a storyboard guide, and it feels really soulless to me. Whereas you get the new Watchmen, HBO's Watchmen, which is a new interpretation of someone else's stuff, and it feels like unbelievable. Because it
0: wasn't tethered to the graphic novel. It
3: understood what the graphic novel was doing to a a really powerful degree, I thought. And so I I find it interesting completely understanding the frustration of, of your work getting this new thing. But I guess to me, I, I really like that it's a Del Toro movie too. The worst thing I can imagine creatively having to do is you already have to cater to these expectations about this thing someone loves. So at least getting to make it partially your own so that maybe people will find this thing and love it for the version you've created of it, it must be some type of thing that at least I would need as a director to feel validated by it, to feel like I've really put my stamp on it. Because I think an adaptation where you don't get to have any of your voice in any regard, seems kind of devastating to the end product. I don't don't know if anyone else feels that way. I see what
2: you're saying, because I I never even thought about it. Comics can be used essentially as a storyboard for a movie. Like, the shots are there, everything is there. But when it's directly, when they are used as such, and they're not, like, embellished or even adapted, like, when you, if you look at, like, Sin City, which was fun, but it still felt a little soulless. 300 Mm -hmm. is the same thing, like... It's like
3: an understanding of style, but not of what the medium's doing. I was going to... Bring up the
1: difference between um, something like a Scott Pilgrim or Spider Verse, which are movies that are comic adaptations that seem to understand embracing the high style. And I think that has to do with the people making it, versus I wrote down Hulk and the first Thor movie, Ang Lee's Hulk, which has all these like panel things, which is like kind of weird. And then I just rewatched Kenneth Branagh's Thor movie and I would say somewhere between 30 to 60% of that movie is canted Dutch angles to the point where they become pointless. I'm watching it like does Kenneth Branagh think that Dutch angles denotes comics? I'm not entirely sure. And I think there's something definitely there between people sort of understanding the strengths of a medium and being able to pull them and adapt them versus people who are just sort of looking at this thing and going like, eh, well. It's got panels, I guess.
0: I was listening to Clint Eastwood yesterday or the day before. Eastwood said, what makes a Western is a good story. He said, if you have a great story and you cast it well, you just get out of the way. And I heard the wisdom of that. And I actually would say that I think what's interesting is that it is a rarity that filmmakers are really good at story. Now, how you define story is different for everybody, but I think a lot of times People who make movies think that movies are a visual medium. So you get a visual stylist. But I think we've all seen movies that have a visual stylist that feels soulless, which is what you guys are talking about. Sometimes you get somebody who's like, oh, he's good with actors or she's good with actors. And the cinematographer will take care of the shots. And I don't think those movies work out all that great usually as well. But then you get certain directors and they're very few. And I mean this very, very few who actually always start from the story and they go, oh, well, no, that, you know, I'm telling this story about a man who's a good man. And in trying to help his family, he becomes an evil man. Godfather. He loses his soul. Francis Ford Coppola understood that what the Godfather was about. I don't know how many people have read the Puzo novel, but Coppola was like, I'm going to make a Shakespearean tragedy. That's the movie I'm making about a man who actually, through his goodness, becomes evil. And that's somebody who's like, that's a story. I got it. And so I think what's interesting is that I would wager, I'll throw this to you guys. uh, You know, Connor talks about Marvel all the time. I've only seen a few of them. But I really loved Iron Man, the first Iron Man, because it seemed like that was a really interesting character to me. And that was a really interesting story, was this spoiled kid who has to come to a greater awareness of the world. That feels like a story to me. So I don't know what you guys think, but I would wager that the best comics adaptations have great stories. And Daniel, yeah, to your point, you know, we all talk about my favorite Batman's Batman Returns. I still don't know how that thing got made. It's like the kinkiest movie about sex freaks I've seen where it's like I got my kink you got your kink and we're really turned on for like two hours at a blockbuster movie
3: and I mean that's maybe not story but sometimes I'll go for like wow that's crazy I think even tying it back to Hellboy like I love Guillermo del Toro but my, my biggest issues with him are really in his English language stuff are unbelievable to look at great performances but do have this weird some of the storytelling is a little bit not soulless, because I think there's a purity to his form that he wants with, the, with what he's
0: doing. I don't know that you feel the same thing I feel, but it is interesting when you see a Pan's Labyrinth or a Devil's Backbone, which are movies, I actually, those are probably my favorite Del Toro movies. Yeah, I think incredible. Yeah, where he's working in Spanish and there's a nuance and maybe an understanding of that culture, even though ironically he's Mexican, he's making those movies in Spain, which would be like us making movies in England. Del Toro specifically, I feel, has this understanding of I'm in Hollywood. And I'm going to make a Hollywood movie, and so I wonder if maybe he censors himself or tries to tell a story in a very straightforward way. Now, I was going to ask all of you. I haven't seen Nightmare Alley. How was that?
2: I loved it. Yeah, yeah it was one of my favorite movies last year. It was, it was really, really great. It was almost like visceral. Like I could feel the realism of the scenes. Like it felt like like I felt like I could feel the wood of these old like buildings and stuff. And I, it
3: was just really, really lush to me. I thought it was great. He's such a passionate filmmaker that it's hard not to get enveloped in things. And it feels almost mean to criticize because this man just lives and breathes film. I think it shows in his filmmaking. I, I was I was very fond of Nightmare Alley. And I think a lot of that stems to, it, even though it's like an unbelievably gorgeous picture, it's still like a character study at its heart. And I think he really goes for that. And with Bradley Cooper in that regard, Cooper's performance is amazing, but he kind of finds the soul of it pretty quick in the character in a way that sometimes I, I found that he was lacking. So I think Nightmare Alley was a, was a very positive step in that. But it still like, features his, his signature of being just sort of like, you think about it for days afterwards because it's just stunning. Like, it's unbelievable what he achieves, both practically and with his effects his team. I actually think the
0: problem is I was a big Last Jedi fan. And I know that Daniel's a huge Last Jedi fan. AJ, are you a Last Jedi fan? Uh, uh, yeah. It's okay. Yeah, that's fine. But what I liked about Last Jedi, which I always tell people, was, oh, it was doing something different. It was interesting. It was trying to re-democratize Star Wars. Away from this idea that it's all about royal family bloodline stuff, which I don't relate to at all as an American. I appreciate family drama, but like when it's always like, oh, the Jedi are a religious order and it's he's your uncle and your dad. And I was like, okay. I liked when Luke was like a dude in the desert who suddenly found himself bombing the Death Star. And that could be any of us. And I think the danger now is fan service. So what I wanted to set up to you guys is, what's the danger of the current moment? Do you think that directors and studios and everybody are too freaked out about the fans and fan service?
2: Yeah, especially when it comes to comics and comic properties.
3: Yeah, like the fans will definitely voice their opinions. And they're being listened to in a way that is sometimes alarming, I think. like I think Rise of Skywalker is a, re- a reactionary movie where like Disney panicked and was like, oh, people are responding to this in a minority negative way. Let's just change course completely.
1: Weirdly, some of the comic book stuff, there's so much of it that there are things that are being heavily fan service, but then there's also stuff that kind of exists outside of that. And I think some of the other properties that aren't as comic book related that have less entries are probably being more dictated towards fan service like a Star Wars. Whereas with the comics, I think there's so much of it now that like if something the fans don't like this one then they'll like the next one that comes out in two months and so uh in certain places dc especially seems to be kind of opening up in terms of like the freedom they're allowing filmmakers in certain ways i'm sure there's going to be examples of this not being the case
3: but i i loved reeves matt reeves's batman for that it felt like a, a person's vision in a very unconnected way with the other stuff like DC specifically has been releasing
1: or as like as much as most of us here or at least three of us didn't like Joker I have to admit that that does seem like a movie that they got to make basically whatever they wanted to make and from what we're hearing from this new one it sounds like it's going to be a musical yeah. sequel with Lady Gaga I didn't, as Harley Quinn I didn't like
3: the first one but if that's what the sequel is really going to be I cannot wait yeah I don't, I don't trust it. I don't trust the sequel. It does. Yeah.
1: I don't really, I don't really either, but I I think the point being that it doesn't seem like a movie that's being made as some sort of fan, neither of them as like a fan service catering sort of thing.
3: If it is, I would love to see the Twitter thread of people that's like the Joker should be a musical. What are they doing? And DC's like, (laughs) yes,
1: they're right. There's a lot of movies we don't even think about as being, um, like A History of Violence is technically a comic book movie. Bong Jun Ho's Snowpiercer is uh, based on a French comic. I, I mean, manga is its own whole thing. There's so many adaptations of that, both in anime and and outside of it. I don't know if it's a manga specifically, because I know there's different terms for certain things, but I know Old Boy is an adaptation of a comic huh. book. The- Basically,
2: a manga is a comic book, and then anime is an is a cartoon.
1: I just meant that like old boy's Korean. And so I don't necessarily know because manga usually denotes Japanese. And so I don't know if manga is a term that's used outside of Japan. I think
2: Korean manga is manhua. Okay. I think that's technically what it is, but. It's a very pleasant word.
3: Mang-la.
1: Old boy is a Japanese manga series that was adapted into a Korean film, but uh, also um, a rest in peace to Tim Sale, who as of this recording passed away in the last week who is uh, an incredible artist, yeah. uh, Most probably most known for doing uh, yeah. The Long Halloween and Dark Victory with Jeff Loeb at DC Comics. If you haven't read those, his art, I think, is like beautiful in like, a very like scratchy, kind of non-beautiful way. Long Halloween's a classic and worth checking out.
2: Comics and movies presents an interesting thing in that comics before movies, the same character could be around for 50 years in movies that character is portrayed by an actor who is going to get old so there's there's now a shelf life in these characters which wasn't there before which kind of changes everything like right? captain america's been around for 60 years or whatever but in movies it's only been around what 10 years and then that and that's it like you're gonna have to change the character you're gonna have to change what superheroes are in a way because now they're going to be able to get old
0: and they're bringing back old batman michael keaton's coming back
2: right, right. So you're gonna have, you're gonna have like generational things as opposed to just one person like bruce wayne can't be batman forever in a movie right unless there's a re you know a reboot oh, with cgi people who knows that's true. They did, yeah, Luke did look pretty good in The, in the Mandalorian, I gotta say. It
3: must be kind of cool as a, if you're a comic book movie writer to have opportunities like that to allow like, actors aging to create new stories with them would be, I think, an exciting thing.
2: Yeah, it, it kind of makes the superheroes a little bit more human
1: when they can die or get old. Well, the, I mean, the best version of that is probably Logan in terms of mm-hmm. like movies that have played into that.
0: And although this is probably not successful, I haven't seen any of them. So I guess that maybe says something right there. It is interesting to see Schwarzenegger come back as the Terminator, but he's old Terminator, even though he's a robot. But there was something interesting even in the trailer. I was like, oh, I wonder how they deal with that because they're bringing him back. But he's old Terminator.
2: So when it comes to robots, there's always the, oh, I want to be more human, so I'm going to put old parts on my new parts so I look older. I'll implant gray hair, so now I am an old man now. See, I'm Yeah, that's,
1: that's why they justify why data looks so fat. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs>
0: well, pop culture final thoughts. Edwin, what are you doing, man? When did, when did you pick up this herbal cigarette habit where you just sit and judge us from the wall? Uh, You literally look like a French poet who's sitting back in his apartment, like looking at all of us in disdain. Do
3: you have pants on? Yeah, I'm wearing boxers. it It looks like you've just had a lovely evening and are having a cigarette in the 1960s.
1: I don't know if boxers come kind of his pants.
4: Uh, let me see.
3: Pop uh, oh, culture.
4: That? Final thoughts. I saw Crooklyn. I saw Spike Lee's Crooklyn for the first time. I loved it. I think probably one of his top tier best movies. That's his follow up to Malcolm X, by the way. I love Crooklyn. From doing an epic motion picture to doing like a, you know, a semi biographical movie about him. It's pretty good. It's pretty. That's kind of a typical director move, actually. Every director does that. Every director does their own semi biographical picture about themselves. I watched *Cinema Paradiso* for the first time ever. I cried at least three times.
1: Uh, By the time this comes out, it'll have been finished. But we're recording after two episodes of the new *Miss Marvel* show have aired. And it is very, very good. And I would definitely recommend uh, checking it out. Even if you're not into the MCU stuff, it's a pretty fresh place to start. It's a great sort of high school thing. This girl dealing with, you know, her parents being kind of conservative Muslims and she just wants to be American girl and, and she gets powers and it's been really fun. And you can find me at twitch.tv slash Cruz and watch me play D&D Tuesday evenings, twitch.tv slash NerdHolla.
3: In the realm of talking about like comics in general, like it's sort of a crazy, I don't know if you've been to a comic book shop recently, but sort of comic books now are your access and selection of them are insane. And so I picked three series from the last 15 years that I really loved. All three of them happen to be from Image Comics, which is the third biggest comic, but sort of focuses in like indie stuff. The three that I was obsessed with, and I think some of them are now complete, but it's Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughn, which I think has like 30 issues. The Nightly News by Jonathan Hickman, who wrote some of the best Marvel comic arcs, l yeah, late 2000s to early 2010s. An unbelievable run, but The Nightly News is like a six-part miniseries that's one of my favorite comic book things. And then there's another series called Sex Criminals. I think it might be done. Its last issue was issue 69. And so I think if they ended there, that's... The perfect thing but it's written by matt fraction and it's a pretty incredible thing too so if you're looking to expand your comic book world there's some really cool indie stuff going out
2: also you should probably plug saga too because everybody loves saga.
3: oh yeah. oh that's also K. Vaughn, <Bond>, right saga's <laughs> yeah. unbelievable i have not read it in a few years i'm waiting on a new compendium but sagas is incredible image
1: does a lot of publishes a lot of ed Baker and sean phillips is like crime stuff uh, that's also really great, like Fatal and Criminal.
3: There's also there's a there's a relatively new one. I think it's called The Good Asian. That I've heard a lot of great stuff about about a Chinese American detective in like the 1930s, which just sounds like.
2: Just to kind of piggyback on Connor's uh, Miss Marvel, I think it's great. I love the fact that it's so unapologetically cultural. It's just Muslim. Like there's scenes where they're in the mosque and they go through the whole thing about like women and men being separated, and they go through the thing about before you go into the mosque, you like wash, like you wash your hands and feet. Evolutions. Yeah. Like it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And it's just like, it's just what they do. Mm -hmm. It's not presented as like, oh, we're going to do the mosque scene now. It's a big mosque thing. It's just like, okay, yeah, it's just the life, you know? And I, and I really appreciate it for that.
1: It looks like they're like reframing the origin a little bit to be around when Pakistan and India were sort of inadvertently created by the British right. colonizers moving out of the country.
2: Right, it almost like starts
3: the conversation in the way that the Watchmen did. I wasn't super interested in it and Connor was explaining this to me yesterday and that sounds like what I want these gigantic franchise things to do. They have such an incredible like stage to make interesting stories that don't feel shooed in or hammered. They're just topical about ways to inform. And if I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the opening of Watchmen takes place and what that show has done to the city is insane. There's now like this panic about this wasn't top, this was like hidden type of thing. And the fact that it has brought a voice that now people can get behind, which is so silly to imagine that it took a TV show to have to do this. But such a cool thing to see it happening.
1: The Miss Marvel show, they drop the fact that um, the FBI's monitoring of mosques and other... Uh, yeah. You know, Muslim people after nine eleven, I I wonder some of these things that they drop sometimes. I'm like, I wonder if Disney's trying to like just really cut their ties with being able to use <laughs> music, being able to use like military equipment in movies because you say stuff like that. It's like, I don't know if they're going to like that.
2: Definitely taking some some risks in a, in a very casual way, which I feel like it, that's the way that it should be. It shouldn't be a, a proclamation of this person is, you know, like... I think they had like the whole like Superboy is gay thing. Like that was like a big thing. It shouldn't be a headline. It should just be like, okay, yeah, there's one panel where he's kissing his boyfriend and then he goes off and he
3: saves the world. Like it's just casual.
0: Like that's fine.
3: Yeah. I saw a story beat. It's, it's character because it's the lives that people live instead of shoehorned things to be like, we understand.
0: Anecdotally, it was interesting. So I was watching Hellboy because I'd never seen it in preparation for this. And Martha came over. She sat down and uh, there's just so much going on that we have Sunday nights and Monday nights and Tuesday nights together. And then often I'm doing movies Wednesday through Saturday nights. And she was not too thrilled that I was spending our Monday night watching a movie. And I was like, well, come on, you want to watch it with me? And she was like, I hate, I hate when you bring work home. And uh... (laughs) Yeah. But I was like, that is true. What I do is movies. And so when I pop on a movie that we haven't chosen together, It's work. You know, for me, I always get lost in a movie, whether it's good or bad. I've always, I think I've said this before, but I've always felt that's kind of like my superpower. I never break down. I just always get lost in films, which I've loved. So, you know, whether I like it or not, I'm like, ah, I get to watch a movie. This is great. But it did, it did remind me. And I guess I just say this to people out in the world that I love what I do. I love what we do. I feel very blessed that Somehow, at least as of today, Secret Movie Club is still alive and uh, moving forward. And it, it, like every day is fun and interesting to me. I don't dread it. But I also have to remember that, you know, I've got a family, I've got my wife, and we do spend time. We went to the zoo for Father's Day. I was with my family all day. We went to Tamashaners. Shanners. I get up with my kids every day. I love it. But it's important to remember that whatever you do, you need to think about too how it affects the people around you. And then how you can balance it, not that there's ever an answer. Obviously, it's an age-old thing. But it was funny, and Marta was very understanding, and then the baby woke up, Pammy woke up, and Marta was like, don't worry about it, finish the movie. And I was like, that was very nice of her. But it did, it did just get me thinking you know, I'm married, I have kids and I wouldn't, ch- I, you know, that's the most important thing to me in the world. So you have to figure out how to do what you love and love the people you love. And and it's a never ending thing. So it's not really a pop culture thing, but it was a funny moment to me because I was like, you don't want to watch Hellboy?" And she was like, no,
2: it's a pop culture thing. Like mom and pop. It's your, it's your fatherly thing. It's your, yeah, pop.
0: literally a pop culture thing, dude, you and I, we just created our million dollar idea, pop culture.
2: Oh yes.
0: Boom! There's that IG right now. I'm writing it down. (laughs) Pop culture will have a million followers in two weeks. All right, guys. Thank you so much. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can check out everything we do at secretmovieclub.com, and you can get tickets at Eventbrite. As always, I want to thank Connor lloyd Cruz, Chief Creative Content Officer Connor lloyd Cruz, who edited this episode. And next week... You're going to get a Defend This Movie. It's going to be actually one of our regular blog writers, Patrick uh, McElroy, and myself discussing Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura, which I think for the first time in the history of Defend This Movies, I do not like that film. And I have always been aware that that's heretical Because a lot of people cite La Ventura, and I understand it. We'll get into it. I understand why people hold up La Ventura as the beginning of a a new kind of modern movie, a beginning of a new kind of modern indie movie. But I just, I'll get into it when you hear it. But I actually, it's one of the few films I have an active dislike of, and I do not get it all. Bergman called Antonioni a sterile cuckoo. Which I think is going A little too far No, no, nah, nah, he's off. right You know I hate Bergman That dude's right man But, but, but he also called Godard that Bergman was kind of a prickly dude but nevertheless there are antonioni movies i like and we'll get into it but la ventura is not one of them so next week patrick mcelroy will be defending la ventura and i will find myself in the very strange position of having to be honest with the secret movie club audience about a movie that i dislike however i am going to re-watch it before we record so i may change my mind okay guys have a great week
1: goodbye citizens bye-bye, bye-bye. love you family
0: I would love to be Paddington 3 it would be about how Paddington helps you find your voice, Edwin. Like you wake up one day in that apartment and there's Paddington. He's like, well, you a little jam. What would you say to that little British bear? He's like, let's let's roll out the put up the curtains. There's sunlight outside. Come on, let's go out. Come on, governor. What would you do I to would, the bear? I will probably say bear. If Paddington talks to you me. like that, just in know that, that is
3: not Paddington.
0: Oh, he doesn't have a Cockney <laughs> accent. Well, you've watched, you've watched a bootleg. He's not Michael Caine, Craig. All right. You Come on, we've got to kill someone. Is someone I oh. don't lie at all. <laughs> he doesn't. That's not what Paddington's about. No, no. You just, you no. You just ripping. Get Carter, man.
4: What's <laughs> wrong with you? Okay.